Well, in 1517, a Roman Catholic friar named Johann Tetzel, which does rhyme with pretzel, traveled around towns in Germany proclaiming to the people, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. This catchy little rhyme was an incentive for the people to buy what were called indulgences, which essentially meant that they would receive merit from Christ or Christian martyrs that would earn them favor before God and thereby lessen their time in purgatory and speed them on their way to heaven. That's what indulgences were. And of course, this also meant that the wealthier someone was, the more merit they could receive because they could purchase more indulgences than someone who was poor. This sale of indulgences was one of the main practices that Martin Luther would condemn when he posted his 95 theses and launched the Reformation 505 years ago this month. If we fast forward to 2022, the sale of indulgences has passed, but the ideas really haven't. Now we have what's known as the prosperity gospel. Now, though the prosperity gospel may come off a little sleeker and less transactional than the sale of indulgences, it isn't a whole lot different. Within prosperity gospel preaching is the idea that God will bless those who have faith, and one of the best markers of faith is how much you give. And again, if that's the case, then who receives the most blessing from God? Well, the one who gives the most does. And who gives the most? The one who has the most Prosperity gospel theology implies that the rich will be the ones who are most blessed by God. Now if we go back to the time of the New Testament, there were no indulgences, there was no prosperity gospel, but there was still the popular notion that those who were rich were blessed by God. The people heard passages like Deuteronomy 28, which says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. They heard those passages spoken to the nation of Israel, and they wrongly concluded that those individuals who were both pious and prosperous had earned God's blessing. And so we see this common thread of belief from 33 AD to 1517 to 2022 that material riches correlate with spiritual blessing. In every age, there's been a form of this false teaching that riches can somehow help us to reach the kingdom. But this morning, we're going to see just the opposite from Jesus According to Jesus, riches are an insurmountable obstacle to receiving eternal life. Riches, according to Jesus, are an insurmountable obstacle to receiving eternal life. You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, continuing our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And our passage this morning is Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. Last Sunday, we were reminded that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have become like little children before God, to the dependent, to the humble, to the weak, to the poor in spirit. Well, today's passage introduces us to someone who is just the opposite of a little child, a young man who is both rich and powerful. Listen to the word of God to us this morning, Matthew 19, verses, 20, verses 16 through 26. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? 
And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What I want to do this morning is first just walk through this story together and then answer two pressing questions and finally give three applications. So first the story, then two pressing questions, then three concluding applications for us. And let's let's just jump in to verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And first just notice what this man is seeking. Eternal life. This comes up again and again in our passage this morning. Verse 17 refers to entering life. Verses 23 and 24 refer to entering the kingdom. Verse 25 refers to being saved. That's what this passage is about. It's about salvation. It's about eternal life in the kingdom of God. The man who comes to Jesus lacks assurance that he will be saved. He's not sure that he's going to have eternal life. And so he asks him, what good deed must I do? Now notice what he's asking. This isn't the simple question, how can I be saved? Which we all will be so eager to hear. That's not the question. He says, instead, what is a good work that I can do to secure eternal life for myself? You see, he believes that he can do some good deed that is is so great that it guarantees his salvation. That he can do some meritorious work that secures his place in the kingdom. How does Jesus respond? Verse 17, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's drawing this man's focus away from his question and putting it on the person he's asked the question to. Jesus says, why are you coming to me when there's only one who is truly good? God himself. What is Jesus implying to this man? Saying God is the only one who is good, and yet you've come asking me about what is good. Who do you believe I am? From the very outset, Jesus is challenging this man to consider who he is. He's challenging this man to consider why has he come to Jesus, who is Jesus, what is his identity. With that question in place, Jesus gives the man a fairly disappointing answer. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. In other words, Jesus says to him, there isn't one thing you can do to secure eternal life life for yourself. If you want eternal life, then you have to obey the totality of God's commandments. There's not just one act that can secure it for you. He's giving this man the law of Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. He's giving him that verse. And if you want to enter life, keep 
all the commandments. Is Jesus teaching that this man could be saved by his works? Not at all. He's using the law the way that the law is meant to be used. He's pressing home to this man the impossibly high standard of the law so that he might recognize he can't do that. These two questions in verse 17 should draw this man to two conclusions. Jesus is good, and I am not. Jesus is good. He's the only one who is good, and I am not. These two questions, these two conclusions, rather, are foundational to true faith. Jesus is good. I am not. The only problem is that this man doesn't reach these conclusions. He ignores the first part of Jesus' response entirely. Why do you ask me about what is good? And he follows up on the second part in verse 18 with a question that shows he's entirely missed the point. And he said to him, which ones? Of course, when Jesus said, keep the commandments, Jesus meant all the commandments. But this man can't get out of this mentality that there must be some set list of good works that he can do and check off to secure eternal life. So which ones, Jesus? Well, instead of just saying all of them, Jesus winsomely and wisely gives the list that the man asks for in verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You may have noticed something interesting about this list is that Jesus lists every one of what we might call the horizontal commandments of the Ten Commandments. All the ones that have to do with how we treat other people in the Ten Commandments, those are the ones he lists, and then he gives the ultimate horizontal command, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't include any vertical commands about worship and idolatry or the Sabbath or coveting. He doesn't give the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He focuses on the man's relationships and how he lives toward other people. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus give this man this list? Well, it's because he knows that this man assumes that he loves the Lord. He assumes he's a faithful worshiper. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever met someone who says to you, I love God with all my heart, and yet they're not living out of love for God at all? How do you expose to someone like that that they actually don't love God? Well, you help them see how they fall short in their day-to-day interactions with other people. This list is meant to help this man see that he falls short of God's standard of goodness. And yet again, this man fails to see what Jesus is drawing him to see. He hears the list Jesus gives, and look at what he says in verse 20. All these I have kept. I've kept all of those, Jesus. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never lied. I've always honored my father and mother, and I've always loved my neighbor as I love myself. Now, taken as strictly, literally as we can, we might believe him on the first one. Okay, as strictly as possibly speaking, you've never murdered, you've never committed adultery, maybe, you've never stolen, perhaps you've never stolen, you've never lied, unlikely, you've always honored your father and mother, no way. You've always loved your neighbor as you love yourself. Impossible. Yeah, that's what this man truly believes about himself. And so he asks Jesus, what do I still lack? Is there any other commandment that I must keep to gain eternal life? 
In verse 21, seeing that the man is so unable to recognize his own spiritual lack, Jesus goes for the jugular in a sense. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. He tells him, if you want to secure eternal life, if you want to be acceptable to the Father, if you want some great deed that will guarantee your entrance into the kingdom, here it is. Exchange your treasure on earth for treasure in heaven. Surrender everything you have and follow me. And why does Jesus give this man this specific instruction? Jesus never told the other disciples that they had to sell all their possessions in order to follow him. Why is this the instruction that this man receives? We find out in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here Matthew tells us this wasn't just any man, this was a rich man a wealthy man, a man who had great possessions. And by calling him to sell them all and follow him, Jesus finally reaches the heart of the matter. What is your treasure? What is your ultimate desire? What is your God? What do you worship? What do you live for? What do you hope in? Matthew tells us that the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What kind of sorrow is this? Where's this sorrow coming from? We need to notice, church, that it's a sorrow that moves away from Christ. It's a sorrow that moves away from Christ and not toward him. He went away from Jesus sorrowful. It's a sorrow that clings to earthly treasure over treasure in heaven. It's a half-hearted and worldly sorrow of someone who knows enough to realize that they are rejecting eternal life. They, they know enough to understand the stakes, and yet they don't value eternal life enough to let go of life here and now. This is the sorrow of unbelief, and it's the sorrow of unrepentance. The man leaves, and Matthew concludes by giving us an interaction between Jesus and the disciples. As they stand there and the disciples see that this man has come to Jesus looking for eternal life and, and goes away rejecting him. By the way, Jesus himself shared the gospel and was rejected. We need to remember that salvation is not in our own hands, it's of the Lord's gracious choice. Jesus says to the disciples these words in 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. These two statements give two similar but distinct truths about the ability of someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. The first statement says that a rich person will only enter the kingdom of heaven through difficulty, with difficulty. No rich person is going to get to the kingdom without difficulty. And the second statement says a rich person could never enter the kingdom on their own. No one's going to get there without difficulty. No one's going to get there on their own. This is why the rich young man walked away. 
Because did you hear that, that metaphor that Jesus used? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go into the kingdom. So, so kids, how, how big is a camel? I mean, just, just use your arms. Tell me how big a camel is. About that big, that big. Who's got the biggest arms, right? That, a camel is a large, large creature. How big is a needle? Yes, very tiny. And how big is the, the, the tip of a needle? Even tinier, right? Can a camel go through the tip of that needle? No. No way. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through that needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which is to say it's impossible. It's impossible. Those who do so will only enter through much difficulty. Well, the disciples hear this, and Matthew tells us they are completely astonished. We need to remember that they were operating on the popular assumption that there's some correlation between riches and blessing. Here's a pious man and a rich man, and you're saying that he can't enter the kingdom? And so they ask Jesus in verse 25, who then can be saved? If the rich can't enter the kingdom, then who can enter the kingdom? Look how verse 26 begins. But Jesus looked at them. Have you ever had someone look at you straight in the eye in such a way you almost wanted to break the, the stare, right? But you knew they mean what they are saying and you believe every word of it. I think that's what Jesus was doing. He looks at them and he says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With man, it is impossible for the rich to be saved, but the God who spoke creation into being, and the God who sent plagues on Egypt and parted the Red Sea, the God who conquered Israel's enemies, the God who caused a virgin to give birth to the Son of God incarnate, this God is able to save the rich. With God, all things are possible. This passage does not teach us that the rich cannot be saved. It teaches us that only God can save the rich. That's the story. Now two pressing questions. First, why is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Why is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? What is it about having great wealth and possessions that prevents the rich person from eternal life in the kingdom? To answer this question, we need to think about the interaction that we just walked through between Jesus and the rich young man. What do we see in this man that kept him from the kingdom? Well, we can definitely say that we see his spiritual blindness, right? He truly believes that he has lived a righteous life. When Jesus gave him the, 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 the horizontal commandments of the law, what did he say? All these I've kept. Have you ever seen those donation tracker uh, stands and tells you what the goal is and here's how much has been given and, and you're filling it up until you reach the goal? You guys know what I'm talking about? So if this man was filling out one of those to chart his own righteousness and and what the goal is and how much he was lacking, I think he would have filled it almost to the top. Be like 99% there. And yet he knows, he, he feels, I'm lacking something. He was blind to the fact that he was lacking everything. He was blind to the fact that he was, that he was down at zero. <laughs> we know he was blind to this because Scripture tells us that no one has kept God's commands. 
Romans 3.12 says no one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The truth is that none of us have any righteous merit before God. We have not kept any of them. Jesus said in Matthew 5.1, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize they have nothing. But this man was kept from the kingdom because he was blind to his own spiritual poverty. It's one thing we see about him. What else can we say? What, what was keeping this rich man from the kingdom? We see his spiritual blindness. We also see his true treasure. We see his true treasure. He was unable to recognize that he fell short of the horizontal commandments of God. And when he was unable to recognize that, Jesus exposed that he also fell short of the vertical commandments. He exposed that he worshipped his possessions, that his riches were first in his heart. His prosperity was his God. His possessions were his true treasure. It's interesting, isn't it? This man wanted eternal life. He was seeking it. But he didn't want it more than the life he already had. He didn't want it more than the life that he treasured here and now. So if we put these two things together, his spiritual blindness and his true treasure I think we can answer the question, why is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom? I think we can answer it this way. Because material prosperity blinds us to our spiritual poverty. Material prosperity blinds us to our spiritual poverty. Earthly treasures desensitize us to our spiritual need. Great wealth dulls us to our spiritual lack. The rich young man illustrates this truth. The problem isn't wealth. The problem is not money. The problem isn't riches. The problem is what wealth and riches do to our sinful hearts. Riches have a hardening and a blinding effect on our fallen hearts that keeps us from seeing ourselves as we truly are before the Lord. We are so satisfied and so comfortable in our material prosperity that we can't really imagine the great need we are actually in. Our material prosperity blinds us to our spiritual poverty, but unless we can see ourselves as truly poor in spirit, we will never receive eternal life. That's why it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom on their own. But remember, with great difficulty, a rich person can enter the kingdom. God can do the impossible. So how does God exert his power to save the rich? That's the second question. How does God exert his power to save the rich? With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So God can do the impossible. God can save the rich, but but how does that happen? How does he do this humanly impossible work of salvation for the rich? And the answer is simple. God exerts his power to save the rich through the gospel. Through the gospel. We are reminded of Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel is where God has concentrated his omnipotent power. All of God's almighty power is, is inside of the message of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's in the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus told this man, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. But do you know what the gospel tells us? 
Listen to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, there is only one who is truly good, and that is Jesus. He alone is rich in righteousness before God, and yet for our sake he became poor. He humbled himself and he took on our spiritual poverty when he went to the cross. And through that cross work, he gives us his own wealth of righteousness. So Jesus is truly the one who sold everything he had and gave to the poor so that we could have treasure in heaven. Jesus fulfilled this. He went from this scene onto the road to Jerusalem and he went to the cross He let go of all of his riches. He took on our poverty so that we can become rich through him. So that we can have treasure in heaven. And what is the treasure that we get through Jesus' work for us? And the gospel tells us it's him. It's him. This is what makes the gospel so powerful. You see, the, the power of the gospel is not only in providing us a way of salvation. The power of the gospel is in revealing to us the treasure of our salvation. This is where the power of it is. It's, it's in realizing that Jesus is not only the means of salvation, he's the goal of salvation. The gospel is the revelation of the glory of the God that we were created to find our satisfaction in. The gospel is the living water that makes us realize that we've been drinking out of polluted, broken cisterns all along. The gospel is the message that tells us it's not a good deed that we have lacked, it's Christ that we have lacked. It's through the proclamation of the gospel that the rich can come to say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's through the gospel that the wealthy come to say with Paul, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's through the gospel that those with great possessions come to say with Jim Elliot, who was martyred for missions, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The gospel reveals that Jesus is better than every worldly treasure. With God, all things are possible, and it is through the gospel that he does the impossible. This gospel proclaims our spiritual poverty, it proclaims Christ's immeasurable riches, and it proclaims that by his grace alone, we who are poor may become truly rich, and that he himself is our treasure in heaven. The gospel is the power of God to save the rich. And this brings us to three applications this morning. Three applications. First, be humbled by the gospel of Christ. Be humbled by the gospel of Christ. Remember, Jesus not only said that salvation of the rich is impossible with man, impossible with God, he also said that when the rich do enter, they enter with difficulty. It's impossible with man, it's possible with God, but when God does his work, the human perspective of that is going to be it's difficult. It's not going to be easy. What's the difficulty that Jesus is referring to? It's the difficulty of humility. It's the difficulty of being brought to the end of yourself. It's the difficulty of being made like a child. This morning, in light of the gospel, we must humble ourselves before God. 
we must make our confession the opposite of the rich man's confession. Our confession is none of these have I kept. None of these have I kept. We need to recognize that there's only one who is good, and it's not you, and it's not me. It's Jesus. And in this humility, we can rejoice because the kingdom of heaven belongs to the humble. Be humbled by the gospel of Christ. Second, be generous with God's gifts to you. Be generous with God's gifts to you. We need to come face to face with the spiritual peril of riches. The spiritual peril of riches. And and, and the reality that many of us, if not all of us this morning, do have great possessions. Again, riches are not the problem. What riches can do to our hearts is the problem. This is why scripture warns us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. What does money do in our hearts? That's the peril. And so how can we keep ourselves from the love of money? How can we do battle against that spiritual danger? And one answer that we see throughout the scriptures is by giving it away. By being generous with it by letting go of it, by viewing our wealth as a stewardship to be shared with others for God's glory and their joy. We know that not all disciples are given this instruction to go sell everything and give to the poor and follow me because we see instructions to the rich in the New Testament. And that's not what is said to them. Instead, here's what we hear. 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul tells Timothy, charge the rich to sell everything they have and give it away. No, that's not what he says. Charge the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Charge the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasures in heaven as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The external act of selling everything you have given to the poor, does not secure you treasure in heaven. The internal act of letting go of your possessions and recognizing they're all gifts from God and letting go of them for his glory and the joy of others, that is what stores up treasure in heaven. And so be generous with God's gifts to you. Be generous with your home. Be generous with your possessions. Be generous with your wealth. Invest it not just in yourself and your kids and your time, but invest it in people and in missions and in good works. Be ready to share. Be ready to to, to pay for a good meal for one another. Be ready to send extra funds to missionaries that are trying to to reach their level of support, to stay over there and plant a church. Be, Be ready to do these things because we are not living for the here and now. Our treasure is in heaven. So be generous with God's gifts to you. And finally, believe in God's power to save. Believe in God's power to save. I believe there's an evangelistic emphasis to the way this ends. As the disciples have watched Jesus interact with this man, and and as he walks away, now Jesus speaks to them, and they're wondering, can can the rich be saved? What do we do do with the gospel in in terms of evangelism if if they can't be saved? And, And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Listen, you may have someone in your life right now who's rejecting God for the sake of riches. 
You might know someone whose hearts are blinded to their spiritual poverty because of their material prosperity. You might know someone who's choosing treasure on earth over treasure in heaven. And the truth is that this person cannot enter the kingdom of God on their own. But with God, all things are possible. I call you to believe that this morning, Redeemer. Believe that God can save the spiritually blind and the materially satisfied. Believe that God can open their eyes and humble their hearts. And understand that if that work is going to happen, it will only happen through the proclamation of the gospel. It will only happen if they hear the good news that he who is rich became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. So church, let's believe in God's power to save and in our believing, let's preach this gospel which is the power of God for that salvation. Our Father, we come to you and uh, we do praise you this morning for the gospel and for the revelation of the riches of Christ's righteousness and the unbelievable grace of Christ to condescend to our poverty and to take it on himself so that we could become rich before you and have relationship with you forever as our treasure in heaven. Oh Lord, please let our lives reflect these treasures. Please let our lives display that we do not live for the here and now, but we live for the day that's coming. Help us to heed and obey the call of Christ to each of us this morning. And Lord, help us to have the gospel ready on our lips, knowing that whoever we come in contact with, it is your power, your omnipotent power to save. You've saved us through that power. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.